turn for the last time to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, at least within this series, to Revelation 22, verse 7. Whosoever will. Today is our final sermon in our series on the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Next week we are going to begin a topical series on the morning will be primarily on family. We'll talk about husband, wife, child, parent. In the evening, we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction for a few weeks, not right away, but uh, there'll be 10, 10 messages in total, four messages in the evening, six in the morning. Those six in the morning are going to lead us up to uh, the messages surrounding Resurrection Sunday. In the evening, we're going to talk about a couple of other elements of culture and society, biblical masculinity, biblical femininity. What are those? We're going to talk about the relationship of God's people to society and culture, things that uh, are in grave conflict today that we need to be thinking about. That's going to be coming up next uh, before we we move into resurrection uh, focus and then on to our next expositional series. But for today, we are in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ one last time. Uh, This series began the first week of January of 2018, last year. It has spanned 47 messages, including today's message. Over the course of this past year, we have dedicated our time to knowing the contents of a book which comes with a definitive blessing for obedience, a blessing which bookends, in fact, the reading of this letter. So it was back in chapter 1, verse 3, where we read this. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Notice that the blessing was not simply upon the reader of this prophecy, or the studier of this prophecy, but was upon the keeper of this prophecy. We mentioned at the time that this blessing was upon the one who keeps The words meaning to guard or to hold the words of the prophecies of this book. To that end, we understood from the very outset that God was not just going to be giving us information here, which is oftentimes a lot of what prophecy is, right? We're we're gleaning information, but that he is going to be telling us something to expect, something to hope for, something to obey. And we are going to uh, seal that up today. I think throughout the series we have seen these elements, these commands, these promises that make them our own, that call us unto obedience. God wants us to take the promises and commands of this book and to make them our own. And I mentioned just a moment ago that the text is bookended by this blessing. The first we find in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he that readeth and they that keep the words of this prophecy. The bookend is actually the first verse of our time together today. So we read in verse 7 of Revelation 22, behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. This blessing begins with a very strong statement. Behold, I come quickly. Now, this statement is never without a struggle in the mind of the honest reader. Here we are some 2,000 years after John wrote this prophecy, after he wrote this promise, and it seems quite apparent that from our perspective, Jesus didn't come quickly. We're 2,000 years along, and he still hasn't come. 
What do we do with this? How do we think about this? What does it mean, behold, I come quickly? A couple of thoughts on this. The first thought, which is the, the, the subservient thought, the lesser thought uh, of these thoughts, is, is number one, we need to remember that God does not live bound to our way of thinking. God doesn't operate within our context. We live bound by his way of thinking. We understand that God does not see time the way we see time. We've seen that all throughout the book of Revelation, right? We have seen, we've gone to prophecies. We've gone to prophecies in the Old Testament. We've gone to Jeremiah. We've gone to Daniel. We've gone to Ezekiel. We've gone to Hosea. We've gone to Habakkuk. We've gone to Zechariah. And we've seen Joel. And we've seen how God does not regard time necessarily in the same manner we do. That things that God uh, presents as one contiguous event might actually span thousands of years between certain elements of that prophecy. So we uh, do not have the right to bind God to our way of thinking about the term quickly. Much to the opposite, we are bound by his way and we are called to bind ourselves as such. But second, it's important to understand what Jesus means here when he says, I come quickly. The word there in the Greek uh, certainly does mean quickly. It means soon or without delay. But I, I want you to, to, to take um, good, strong heed to that second idea there. Without delay. We're going to talk about this more in our application today. But that is really the essence of what Jesus is saying here. The word can mean suddenly, it can mean by surprise, it can mean soon, it can mean without delay. And the idea of suddenly, the idea of without surprise, the idea of without delay, this does very well encapsulate God's message to us in regard to his coming. Intended by God to reflect unto us the swiftness of his coming, that he will not delay and that he will come suddenly and without expectation, by surprise. This is intended by God, as we've talked about any number of times throughout the book, to keep each generation of God's people in a state of anticipation and in a state of expectation of his return. In fact, the various times where we've seen this concept come up in the book of the Revelation help us reflect on this a little bit. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, we read this way back when. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, God says, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. God's speaking to one of the churches here, and as he speaks to this church, he says, if you do what I tell you, if you repent and do the first works, you'll be blessed. If not, I will come upon you quickly. This does not necessarily mean that God is going to change how soon he comes based upon whether they repent or not, but much rather... The idea is that if they are not in a state of repentance and obedience, then God's coming upon them will be without expectation suddenly, without warning, and they will not be prepared for him. Verse 16 says a similar thing. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent or when I come, you won't be prepared. I will come soon. I will come without delay. I will come by surprise. You will be surprised. God does not want us to be surprised by his coming. Now, we will not know when his coming is, but we ought to be prepared. The entirety of the New Testament teaches toward this end that you be prepared for his coming. 
That's what is reflected here. We read it as well. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Hold on, because I'm coming suddenly, and you want to be prepared, and you don't want to lose out on rewards, because I came when you weren't prepared. And then the fourth uh, example here, Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, perhaps gives us a little bit more clarity. Behold, I come as a thief, Christ says. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. This is the same idea. He's just using a little bit of a different phraseology. Instead of I come quickly, I come suddenly. He says, I come as a thief, which is the idea, again, not that God is coming to plunder us, but that he will come suddenly and when we are not expecting. So we need to be ready. And this, I would believe, is how we should understand this warning throughout the book. Behold, I come quickly. And then we find this phrase, which we had talked about before, which we uh, considered in verse, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Notice that within this reference, we have no mention of blessed is he that readeth. Only he that keepeth the prophecy of this book. We should expect that because we're at the end of the book, right? So at the beginning of the book, God says, blessed are you if you read this book and keep it. At the end, God gets down to brass tacks. You've read it. Now you need to understand that the blessing isn't just about the reading. The reading doesn't matter anymore. You've already read it. Now it's about keeping Blessed is the one who keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. God wants the words of this book to be important to us, for them never to stray far from our minds. And it aligns itself very well with the warning because God could come at any moment. And because God will bring these things that we have read upon the unbelieving world And because God has great and precious promises for those who are in Him. And because there will be, when He comes, His rewards will be with Him. We need to keep the hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the forefront of our minds. There is a blessing to those that keep the words of this book, who guard them, who hold them close. And that is our call. We'll talk more about that in our application. We continue in verses 8 and 9. The Bible says this, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. So when John sees and hears these things, the Bible says, John says, he fell down at the feet of this angel to worship him, the one that showed him these things. And John here seems to express what what we see in Daniel, what we see oftentimes when men interact with angelic beings is, and, and when they see visions of God and, and visions of, of the holy, they are absolutely and entirely overwhelmed. He didn't know what to do, but he knew he needed to do something. He longs to give glory and honor to the one who would bring these things to pass. So he falls down at the feet of the angel. The only problem is the angel is not the one who will bring these things to pass, right? And so the angel immediately corrects him, rejects this worship, 
and tells John that he is just a fellow servant. He is just a messenger. And notice who he lots himself in with. He says, I am a messenger. I am a servant of God, just like thy brethren, the prophets. Just like the prophets of years gone by, he says, I'm like them, I'm a servant. But notice who else he says, I'm just like them. He says, I'm just like those which keep the sayings of this book, who also are the servants of the living God. Now, we know from the, the Psalms that, that man is made a little lower than the angels. Uh, the angel is not trying to equate himself as a one-to-one with, with any man, right? But what he is saying here is this, a servant of God is the servant of God. No servant of God is worthy of worship. He is a servant. He is a tool in the hand of a master, whether that be an angel, whether that be a prophet, or whether that be a layman, a keeper of the sayings of this book. By God's grace, every person under the sound of my voice is a keeper of the sayings of this book. And if you are indeed lauded among those, you are a fellow servant just as this angel was, just as the prophets are. We are tools in the hand of the master. He says, instead... Worship God. This is one of any number of times in the Bible where we find that angels or godly men and women of years gone by or any other created being is not by any means worthy of our worship, our reverence, or our prayers. Angels are fellow servants. Prophets are fellow servants. Pastors are fellow servants. The godly men and women of years gone by, they are fellow servants. And if we are counted among the Lord's, saying, the, 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 the Lord's faithful, we are his servants, and we are not worthy of anyone's worship, of anyone's reverence, of anyone's prayers. Paul warned about this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. He said to the church, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. We're called to be discerning that no man would dupe us as believers into worshiping, our, uh, into worshiping something that has no right to be worshiped, and in doing so, we, being beguiled, duped out of our rewards. The Bible calls this intruding into those things of which we have not seen. Peter calls it uh, calls false teachers those that 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 um, are encroaching into things which they know not. We'll talk about that this evening in our time together in Jeremiah twenty-eight. There are any number of people in this world today who have busied themselves intruding into the things that they know not intruding into the unseen. Entire books are written about angelic hierarchies, things of which men truly know very little about. And what they're getting, they're generally getting out of ancient Jewish tradition, mysticism, witchcraft. They're, they're getting out of testifying of the demonic realm, not testifying of the angelic realm. They're not getting it from this book because it's not in this book. They're getting it from what demons have said. They're getting it from what angelic beings have told others. Not a good basis of authority. Not a good basis. We need to be careful that we don't get too deep into the things that we know not. That we don't stray too far from the revelation of the Word of God. Entire religious systems are built around venerating angels, venerating saints, Things 
that are not worthy of reverence or worship. People who are not worthy of reverence or worship. We do not pray to godly men and women of years gone by. We do not worship godly men and women of years gone by. We do not venerate godly men and women of years gone by. We do not pray unto angels. We do not worship angels. We do not reverence angels. Worship God. The angel said, don't worship me. You can find it in Daniel. You can find it throughout the text. Wherever an angel appears, unless he's the angel of the Lord, which is the second person of the Trinity. We've talked about that before. Wherever an a wherever a servant of the Lord who is not a deity is worshipped, he rejects it outright. And we should not seek thus to place ourselves under such a system of worship. Revelation 22, we find this, this element come to the forefront. The angel says, do not worship me. I'm a fellow servant. Worship God and God alone. Verse 10. And he saith unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, this is a very important prophetic command here. John is told not to seal up the sayings of the prophecy of this book. This is in stark contrast to the command given, say, in Daniel, where we could read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. And then verse 9, And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Here in Daniel, uh, the prophet is commanded to shut up the words of the book, to seal the book until the time of the end. And then at the time of the end, the book would be unsealed. What, what does God mean by this? What does he mean when he tells John not to seal up the book? What does he mean when he told Daniel to seal up the book? Well, the concept of sealing up the book, it's not that Daniel would lock his revelation away so that no one could ever read it. Indeed, uh, we recognize that Daniel has been a part of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, we understand that, that um, Daniel was... Uh, uh, read and read in synagogues and translated as a part of the Septuagint and, and Daniel has been around. It wasn't just locked up until the time of the end. To that end, we know that that's not what God meant when he told Daniel to seal it up. But what God does mean when he's talking about sealing up the prophecies is that these prophecies are going to be uninterpreted. They are going to remain rather vague and mysterious until the time that God has appointed. Now, we've often said that Daniel is in many ways the key to unlocking the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, right? I don't know that I could possibly do a series justice on the Revelation of Jesus Christ if I didn't go to the book of Daniel and walk us through because it's the book of Daniel that gives us a timetable. It's the book of Daniel that tells us the nature of, uh, of, of the prince that shall come. It's the book of Daniel that tells us that Antichrist will come out of that, the fourth beast. It's the book of Daniel that gives us the 70 weeks. All of that is found in the book of Daniel. To this end, Recognizing that the book of Daniel opens up to us all of the insights in the book of the Revelation and recognizing that here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 10, God explicitly says to John, don't seal up this prophecy because the time is at hand. Here's what we know. We know that these are the last days. And we know that 
when God had the word of God finished, when the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ was penned, that the New Testament revelation of God, ending with the revelation of Jesus Christ, unsealed Daniel. So that now we can have confidence that with help of the apostles, with the help of the further revelation of God, God has given us everything that we need to understand Daniel to the extent that God would have us to do so. To understand the elements of the end times to the extent that God would, would desire us to know them. So in this age, having the complete word of God and having the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ opened unto us, unsealed, we have everything we need at our disposal to understand God's general plan for the end times. And not only does this make sense, but, but really we have to believe this. Because if God says that there's a blessing for reading this book, and as we'll see in a moment, there's a curse for those who would add or remove from this book, then it's very important that God would let us know what this book means. Or else we couldn't obey it. Or else we couldn't keep the words of the sayings of this book. So God must give us the meaning to understand them if he's holding us accountable to them, right? This is, this is the character of God. So we understand that God has left this book unsealed. He has given us the means by which through his spirit and through the word of God to understand it. I would believe that in the penning of the revelation of Jesus Christ that, that this was the final revelation necessary to unseal the book of Daniel to give us the context to understand what the book of Daniel is talking about. And what we know from that thus is that this, these are the last days and the time is at hand. The time of the Lord's return is imminent so that we can understand the prophetic plan and we must understand the prophetic plan because we are accountable to it and he is coming quickly. He's coming quickly. So we continue and we find another curious statement in verse 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. There's not a general consensus about what this means. If you were to go look it up and uh, read various commentaries, you'd get any number of ideas as to what this means. It, we know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that John or Jesus or the word of God itself does not care about sin and unrighteousness. It's not saying, hey, yeah, if you're unjust, that's okay, be unjust. Hey, if you're filthy, that's okay, just be filthy. That's fine. You can, you can just keep being filthy. It really doesn't matter. We know that the Bible is not saying that, so we can, we can uh, determine what it doesn't mean here. God is not happy to have people remain in their sin and in their transgression and in their iniquity. But in the context, I believe what the Bible is saying is this. That the time is at hand. The realities of the Lord's coming are sure. The books have been unsealed. God has made his, his, his plan known. He is holding us accountable to it. He is going to come quickly. We need to be ready because he could come at any moment and he will come as a thief. And, and we don't want to be found wanting. We don't want to be found lacking. We don't want to be found in a state of, of, of unpreparedness. But while we are waiting... While we are waiting, the unjust are still going to be unjust. While we are waiting, the filthy will still be filthy. While we are waiting, the righteous will still be righteous. While we are waiting, the holy will still be holy. In other words, 
He's coming quickly. He'll come suddenly. He'll come as a thief. We need to be ready. But while we're waiting, history's going to continue. Life is going to continue. Society's going to continue. Cultures are going to continue. There's still going to be wars. There's still going to be problems. There's still going to be evil men. There's still going to be things happening. You, we, we, in other words, don't sell everything and go sit on a hill and just wait for him to come. Keep living life. Keep doing your thing. Stay busy. He that is unjust will still be unjust. He that is filthy will still be filthy. He that is righteous will still be righteous. He that is holy will still be holy until the Lord comes. That doesn't mean the filthy can't be made righteous. That doesn't mean the the unjust cannot be made just. But what it's saying is be prepared for his coming, but don't go sell everything that you have. Go sit up on a hill, turn your eyes up to the heavens and say, I'm just going to sit here until the Lord comes because there's work to be done. There's life to be lived. Things are still going to keep rolling until the Lord comes. So to this end, Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, And behold, I come quickly. I think he means it. And my reward is with me to give every man according to, uh, according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So Jesus says again, behold, I come quickly, right? That's what he's saying here. He's keeping it in our minds. Yes, the unjust will still be unjust. Yes, the filthy will still be filthy. Yes, the righteous will still be righteous. Yes, the world is going to continue. Yes, society is going to continue. Yes, things are going to continue. But I'm coming quickly. Don't let it divert you. We have to walk this line. We have to walk this line of balance between recognizing that the Lord could come at any time and we need to be ready. while simultaneously understanding that history and life is going to continue until he comes. So we can't just quit life because of the possibility of his coming, but simultaneously we can't ignore his coming because of life. We need to live in this area of balance whereby we are determined that we are moment by moment, hour by hour, waiting for his coming and ready for his coming. That when he comes, he will find us so doing. That when he comes, he will find us ready. And when we preached through Luke, we talked about that extensively as Jesus did. But simultaneously, that doesn't mean that we just, well, we're not going to have children. Well, we're not going to get a job. Well, we're not going to do any of that because the Lord is coming. No, we, we need to live in light of his coming. So he says again, I come quickly. And he, he reminds us his reward is coming with him. He is coming and his rewards are coming. This is why we need to be ready. This is why we need to be prepared. This is why we need to be vigilant. This is why every day needs to be lived within the context of his coming. This is why the blessing is, this this is the blessing. His rewards are with him. He will give every man according to his work. And we know from the word of God that he will judge us according to our works. Now in the Old Testament, when God would give a command in the law, he would often begin that command and or and or conclude that command with a statement, an invocation of his authority. Here we see God, Jesus say, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. I will give every man according to his work. And then he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Why? Now we Certainly could see the bookend here because we saw that back in Revelation 1 as well. But why? why? Why just have this statement? I am Alpha and Omega. Well, God is reminding us 
that the one who is telling you this is the one with the authority. We might think of this in context of children. Children can have natural trouble with authority, but particularly with an authority that they don't feel it necessarily has the right over them. So there's a big difference. We, we have uh, allowed, you know, within the, the context of this family, we've told our children, if, if an adult in the church tells you that you need to stop doing something, you need to listen to them. And yet the weight of an adult in the church telling my children not to do something is nowhere near as grave as if their father was telling them to do something. And so if somebody tells my children to do something and they say, oh, okay, but then if they hear dad's voice say do something, there's going to be a heightened degree of concern in their hearts because of the heightened level of authority that their father has over them. What God is saying here is, the one who's telling you this is God. I am Alpha and Omega. I am beginning and end. I am first and last. And like I said, we see this in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 14. Uh, I'm not so much worried about the verse, but in this command, we read this. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy God. I am the Lord. This is your father. So God is saying here, I'm the boss. I've just commanded this. I am the Lord. Remember who I am. Remember the authority that I have and obey. This is done in the Old Testament dozens of times where God makes a command and then simply says, I am the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, one Lord. Just comes out and says, I am God. Worship me. Why? Because I am God. Because I have authority. Jesus tells them his reward is coming with him, that he's going to give men according to their works, that he will come suddenly. And he says, just to remind you how important and serious this is, the one that's telling you this is Alpha, Omega, beginning, end, first, last. It's God. Of course, Alpha and Omega, this is from the Greek alphabet, right? Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So he's saying, I'm A to Z. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. I am everything. Everything began with God. Everything ends with God. And he's everything in between. That's why, that's what gives him the right to tell us what to do. That's why we ought to listen to him. Everything started with Christ. Everything ends with Christ. This is his rodeo and we play by his rules. And there's simply no way around this. And all who see with eyes of faith will fear him, will hope in him, and will keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Because if they are important to God, then they ought to be important to you. So he said he's bringing his rewards with him. What, what are these rewards that he is bringing with him? That's where the blessing is. Blessed uh, the, are, are those who keep the prophecies of this book because when he comes, he's bringing his rewards with him for those who are ready. Verse 14, the rewards. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they might, may have right to the tree of life whoops, and may enter in through the gates into this city. What are the rewards? Well, certainly there will be 
diverse rewards for our works, and we see that in 1 Corinthians 3, but the final reward for those who have listened, for those who are ready for his coming, the final rewards for those who have positioned themselves on God's side, they may have right to the tree of life, they may enter in through the gates of the city. That would be the new Jerusalem. Those who have accepted Christ as Savior have the right to eternal life. Those who have accepted Christ as Savior have the right to enter into the city wherein is the direct presence of God. And why is this important? Because only the righteous get into that city. Only the righteous drink of the tree of life. Only the just enter in through those gates. Only the just partake of that fruit. What's outside of that? Who doesn't make it into the gates of the city? Verse 15. For without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie... All of those whose names are not written in the book of life, all of those who do not have the new name of God written upon them, all of those who have not been born again, all of those who have not been justified by the one who is both just and justifier of the ungodly, all of those who have not come to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, all of those who are yet defined by the evil that they have done in this life, They don't get into the city. They're outside the city. They're outside the gates. They don't make it. They don't get the tree of life. They don't get to enter into the gates of the city. And of course, we know from previous passages that they are cast into the lake of fire. God draws the line where he has always drawn the line. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, the Bible tells us. By grace are you saved through faith, the Bible tells us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, the Bible tells us. All men and women throughout all time who have heard the revelation of God and believed it with their whole heart have been justified by the grace of God, have been given a new name, have been given a new nature, who have passed from death unto life They are, in the eyes of God, holy, unblameable, unreprovable, righteous. They are heirs to the tree of life. They are heirs to the city. Where without are those who, knowing the judgments of God and and knowing that they that do such things are worthy of death, not only do them, but take pleasure in those that do them. Those who seeing the mercy of God established in the person and work of Jesus Christ, disregard that sacrifice, whether in selfishness, whether in apathy, whether in misplaced guilt, whatever it might be, all those who disregard that sacrifice will not enter through the gates of the city, will not be partakers of the tree of life. And this leads us to what might be the most important words in the book. It leads us to a very important invitation. Verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is athirst thirst. 
come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Jesus declares that he himself has commissioned these words to be declared in the churches. He that is the root and the offspring of David, making him the one who we can rightly call Messiah, the great Jewish king. He who is the bright and morning star, the light of the world, the one who spoke the world into existence. His spirit and his bride say come. We saw in Revelation 22, in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned out of heaven. That city, that hope, that eternity, that promise, that promise calls out to everyone and says, come, come be a part of it. The Spirit of God calls out to everyone and says, come, come be a part. And not only that, but then look at the command to the church and let him that heareth, those that hear and regard the prophecies of this book, those that have already heard the call, those who have received the call, what should we do? We should say, come. And all who are athirst, come. Whosoever will, whosoever is willing, whosoever wants it enough to take it on God's terms, may come. Jesus does not tell us of these things so that the believer can rest with a smile on his face at the thought of the damned living in eternal separation from God while he rests in heaven. That's not why Jesus gave us the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He didn't give it to us so that we can sit with a self-satisfied grin on our face as we think of millions upon millions of people dying in judgment. That's not why God gave us this book. God did not give us this book so that his special group of elect can wipe their metaphorical brow and those who are not elect can be informed of the stuff that they can and never will experience. Jesus had this book written to inform the world of the gravity of the judgment that is coming and to extend an open invitation to every man, every woman, every child that if you hear these things, if they concern you, if you believe them, if you understand that God is righteous, if you understand that he is holy, if you understand that he is angry at sin, if you understand that sin must be dealt with, if you understand that, that, that the unrighteous must be dealt with, if you understand that there is a line drawn between those that enter into the city of God and those that uh, uh, spend their eternity in the lake of fire, if you understand these things, then you can flee from the wrath that is to come. Because the Spirit says, come. The bride says, come. The church says, come. And if you're thirsty, and if there's something missing, and if you see just how little this world can satisfy that thirst, if you know it by experience, or if you know it by revelation, if you have been in the world and you've tasted of the pleasures of the world and you've recognized that the pleasures of the world are like cotton candy, you eat it and it dissolves in your mouth and it, it is essentially nothing. It does not satisfy except for a moment of time. 
If you're hungry, cotton candy is not going to help you. If you need nutrients, cotton candy is not going to help you. If you need to live, cotton candy is not going to help you. It's light, it's fluffy, it's sweet, it tastes good on the tongue, and then it's gone, and then you're hungry still. And then you're thirsty still, and you're more thirsty, as a matter of fact, after partaking in it. And if you have come to the place where you've experienced the promises of the world, and you found them to be as empty and as weak as they are, and you say there must be something more, and you've opened the book to the revelation of Jesus Christ, and you've seen the judgments, and you've said the cotton candy eater of this world is the one who receives these judgments, and you say, but I'm thirsty for more, then you can come and drink of the waters of life freely. Where, as Jesus said in John 4, you'll receive a well of water, a spring of water, bubbling up within you so that you'll never thirst again. If you found the waters of life not to satisfy, perhaps you've not lived long enough or not lived dangerously enough to have tested all the waters of, lo- of this life and found just how insufficient they are. But you know the testimony in your heart by the Spirit of God that the world cannot give you what you seek, that the world can give no one satisfaction, can give no one peace. And you have the faith to respond to the Spirit of God inside of you saying, come to the waters of life. They're for you. Would you take of the waters of life freely? Verses 18, 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these words, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book, uh, the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Man has interpreted many different meanings into this warning. It's often used in our circles at the very least to imply that those who have taken liberties with God's word as it relates to translation are in line for God's judgments. And I would caution you against that direct line of thinking. The idea that because we understand that the textus receptus, we would would be able to trace the lines of preservation and the marks of God's inspiration and preservation through that line of manuscripts that the manuscripts that most other Bible versions use did not even exist. It was a compilation text that their Bible did not even exist before 1830, that it bears no marks of, of the preservation of God's Word, that they have removed any number of verses from it. All of these things are true. But I would caution you to not use this, these verses as a argument for why they're in trouble because I've never seen a Bible translator of the NIV um, with the plagues of this book chasing them around. I don't think that's the point of this warning. I think the point of this warning is against those who would pervert the message of this book. Not necessarily a warning against those who would translate the words differently or disagree about which manuscript has the appropriate lettering. Again, I'm not trying to lessen our our respect for the issue of translations, we, we, that's important to our church, and you know that. But let us understand, perhaps, in a different way, this warning here. 
he says, if any man shall add unto the things, God shall add unto him the plagues of this book. If any man shall take away from the words of, this, of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city. Perhaps in a more general, I believe more accurate meaning here, what God is saying is those who attempt to take away the words of this book, in other words, the realities of judgment, the pastor that gets up on a Sunday morning and says, don't worry about judgment, don't worry about the, the end times, don't worry about God's wrath for sin, don't worry about any of those things. Those who seek to convince men that Jesus is not actually coming or that judgment will not fall on unbelievers or that all roads lead to heaven. Those who pervert the message that Jesus is coming as a thief and that his rewards are with him and that all who are not found written in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. Those who mischaracterize the nature of Christ's work and his relationship to our lives today. Those are the ones who have taken away the words of this book. Those are the words of this book. That is what we draw from this book. We draw from this book the reality of judgment. We draw from this book the, the, the surety of Christ's return. We draw from this book the promises and rewards for those who love him. Those who would take that away. Those are the ones who have removed from this book. Now again, I don't see the plagues chasing Joel Olstein either. So what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, God also speaks of adding, those who would add to the prophecy, those who put their own spin on salvation, adding some measure of works, perhaps, to achieve salvation by grace, those who seek to profit off of perverting the message of judgment and salvation. We're going to talk again about these people tonight in Jeremiah 28. I love how often the, the morning and the evening message just, just converge. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a thing of the Lord. What's God saying here? This is what God is saying. Those who would seek to pervert the message of this book will be found experiencing these judgments when the Lord comes. These judgments are for him. He gets up and he preaches a half gospel and he preaches a social gospel and he preaches a works gospel and he says, don't worry about the Lord's coming. Where are the promises of his coming? And he scoffs and he mocks the, the, the believer who would, who would hold to these promises, who would live every day in light of these promises. And he scoffs those who would yield the things of this world for the things of the life to come. That's, that, he's going to do those things, and you know what? He's going to find himself living through the plagues of this book, should the Lord come. That's the warning. That's the warning here. He will find himself as one of those who is without the city on the day when the righteous enter into the gates. This is a warning against false teachers. This is a warning against those who would twist and pervert this message that surely he is coming soon, that his rewards are with him, that God will judge sin. This is the message of the book. This is the promise of the book. And this is the warning. They are those who have disgraced the gospel and so will find themselves in the path of God's judgment. And indeed, this is not the only book which would warn us of such things. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But first, let's finish the book, verses 20 and 21. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. The third time, just today we've read that, Surely I come quickly. You think it matters to God? 
Repetition is important in the scriptures. Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. John responds to the final declaration. Surely I come quickly with this statement. Amen. Let it be so. Verily, truly, it's true. Let it be so. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Can you say that? As we've studied the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, as it comes to its conclusion today, as we talk about those that will enter into the gates of the city and partake of the tree of life, as we talk about those who are without because they are defined not by Christ but by their sin, as we talk about those who are justified and those who are not, as we talk about those who are righteous and those who are not, as we talk about those who are ready for Christ's coming, not just salvation, but are living in a way that is positioned properly so that if Christ came right now, you would be ready. God would find you so doing. You would not be that unprofitable servant who is not ready for his master's return, but you would be the one who is ready. Can you say with John on this day, even so come Lord Jesus, come today, come right now. I want you here. I'm ready. I'm ready. Every moment, is every moment of your life an even so come Lord Jesus moment? Now there are times where we're more interested in him coming than others. There are bad days where you say, Lord, I sure wouldn't mind if today was the day. That'd be really nice. And then there are other days where you've got that ticket in your hand to Hawaii and you say, Lord, you can come in a week. We get that. That's, that's human. That, that's human, right? I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is, is your spirit at this moment positioned so that even if you have things you might be looking forward to, if he came right now, you'd be ready for him. You could say, when you've set aside all of the carnal stuff, even so come Lord Jesus. Can you do that? And that becomes the essence of our first point. Jesus is coming. You who are believers, let me, let me focus in on, on you, most of us here today, our believers, are you there? Are you living an even so come Lord Jesus existence? Is that your day in, day out? Is that, do you, do you wake up in the morning and say, and not, not, maybe not say it out loud, maybe not say it deliberately, but are you living, do you wake up every morning and live your life in the context of even so come Lord Jesus? That you're ready. That if he, he's coming quickly, he's coming suddenly, he's coming as a thief, and if he came right now, you as a believer would not be ashamed at his coming. Or would you be ashamed at his coming? Or would it be that you'd really like to clean up a couple more closets before he gets here? Or would it be that, boy, there's a, there's a lot more work that you could do for him that you've just kind of set aside because there's, there's time and you're living in such a way that if the Lord came right now, there would be regrets. Are you living and even so come Lord Jesus' existence? I also, within the context of this point, want to remind you 
that there's a lot of error out there. That there's a, a lot of teachers saying an awful lot of things that are very wrong as it relates to the Lord's coming. Peter warned us against this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 3 through 10, he says this, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they, are, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So there are those who scoff at his coming. There are those who say, look, things are just continuing, right? As, as Revelation 22 said they would, depending on how we interpret that, that the unjust will be unjust, the filthy will be filthy, the righteous will be righteous, the holy will be holy still. Things are continuing, and they see that as a sign of God's unwillingness, but not us. They see it as a sign of God's delay. They see it as a, a sign of God's non-existence, but not us. Because we know better. Because we can go back and read Genesis 6 through 11. We can go back and read about the flood that came upon the man who was scoffing and saying, where are the signs of this rain? Where are the signs of this flood? Until the day that the door closed. Until the day that the fountains of the deep broke up. Until the day that the water began to fall. But it was too late. He says in verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In other words, the Lord is not beholden to our timetable. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. We talked about this verse in Revelation not too long ago. But this time we're focusing on something quite differently. Last time we were talking about the earth passing away and, and, and the new heavens and the new earth, right? This time we're talking about the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Peter says these scoffers, they look at the fact that sin remains, that life continues, that all things continue as they have been, and they see it as proof that Jesus is not coming. And they scoff. And they live their lives for themselves and they build up their own little kingdom on this earth because they're not living in light of the Lord's return. They don't live and even so come Lord Jesus' existence. They don't live in that godly reverence and fear that says the Lord could come today. Is this how I want him to see me when he comes? Is this the disposition? Do I want God to come while I'm still angry at my spouse? Do I want the Lord to come while I'm still angry? estranged from my parent? Do I want the Lord to come while I, have the, while I am living in, indebted because I stole something? Is that, is that the disposition of unrepented sin, of unreconciled sin with a brother or with God? Is that the disposition within which I want the Lord to come? And the man who is a scoffer 
The man who is unwise says, I am going to live the way I want to live today because they don't have any faith in the Lord's coming. And to this philosophy, Peter answers, reminding them why, if we want to call it a delay, why the delay is there. We are on God's timetable. Any delay which we might perceive, which to this point we would regard as about 2,000 years since the ascension of Christ and his promise that he would come again, this is not slackness. This is not negligence. This is not absenteeism. This is not failure. Every day that Jesus does not come is a testimony of a particular element of God's character. Every day that Jesus does not come is a testimony to his long suffering. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Second Peter tells us. Because he so deeply wants more people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because he so deeply wants every person to come to the knowledge of the truth. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all would come to him. And so he's waiting. So he's being patient. Giving you and I a chance. He's waiting so that your friends, so that your neighbors, so that the men and women of Buffalo might be saved. But make no mistake, the day of the Lord will come. And when it comes, his reward will be with him as well as his judgments. Which is why the man who keeps the prophecies of this book, who regards them, who guards them, who understands the imminence of the Lord's return, who understands what is at stake in the manner in which we live our lives, the man who understands this is the blessed man. The man who keeps the sayings of this book is a blessed man because it matters. Because there are real stakes here. So don't listen to the scoffers in these last days who are mocking the promise of His coming, who are, whether in word or in deed, living in a way that mocks the Lord's sure return. Yes, He hasn't come yet, but that's because of His long-suffering. It's not because of His slackness. And this brings us to our second point, point which we made quite clearly last week when the Scriptures talked about they that are athirst coming. We see it all the more heavily emphasized in Revelation 22 that whosoever will may come, not willing that any should perish, 2 Peter 3 told us, but that all should come to repentance. The call that whosoever will may come leaps from the pages of our text. Whosoever is thirsty, come drink of the waters of life. They're free. For by grace are you saved through faith. You, through faith. You don't have to earn them. You don't have to work for them. You certainly can't be worthy of them. But they're there for you. You know, it's a funny thing about grace. Grace. Unmerited favor. Being given something that I do not deserve. It's impossible to earn grace. If you earn it, it's not Grace. It's impossible to obtain grace. If I obtained it, then it's not grace. Grace is given. Grace is afforded. 
Grace is something that somebody else does for me. If I had any part in its worth, then, then it's not grace any longer. For by grace are you saved through faith. If you're thirsty, in any context, whether that's the young person, whether that's the person in here who, who understands that they have never come to a saving knowledge of Christ by grace through faith, and you're thirsty, whether that's the person who has not been living in an even so come Lord Jesus mindset, and you're here and you're a believer, but you're parched because you're wandering in the wilderness of sin, because you're a child of the living King, and yet you as a child of the living King, having been brought from the rags of your sin, those filthy rags of your own righteousness and being brought into the palace of the king and being clothed with the garments of righteousness and being set at the table of the tree of life. You have pushed yourself away from the table and you have put on your rags again and you've gone back to begging in the streets and you're thirsty and you're unsatisfied. Whosoever will may come and drink of the waters of life freely. That thirst for something real that thirst for something stable, that thirst for something immovable and faithful, that thirst, that, that thirst for purpose in this life, it can't be fulfilled by the things which are made. We are created for something higher. We are created for something more. We are created thirsty for the river of the waters of life. Something real. True purpose, true meaning, it will not be found in anything you can see with your eyes. It won't be found in any philosophy that you can lay yourself on in this world. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ who proclaimed himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone who sees this, and anyone who is willing to invest their eternity in it, who is willing to keep the words of this book, to believe them, to rest their life on them, Whosoever will may come. Drink of the waters of life freely. And we come through the gospel. You're a sinner. You're separated from God by virtue of your sin. You cannot earn your way back. But God, who is rich in mercy, by his great love wherewith he hath loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath reconciled us unto himself by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you're thirsty, if you've never partaken of the waters of life, would you do so today? Would you come to him today? Would you acknowledge to him that you are a sinner, that you cannot get yourself to heaven, but that you believe with all your heart that he can and he did make a way for you through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that he died, he paid for our sins, a once-for-all sacrifice. In that he rose from the dead, he established the reality and the authority that what he has promised he is able to perform. And that as he, rose him, as he rose himself bodily from the dead, so too will we rise with him if we are in him.
and for you who are in Christ, but perhaps are not living, and even so come Lord Jesus' life. Would you repent of that today? Would you get it right? Would you position yourself for the promises of this book by keeping the sayings of this book, by keeping in the forefront of your mind that promise, behold, I come quickly, and thus living in such a way that you are ready moment by moment for your sure return. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.